Welcome to episode number 50 of the Grab Blogger podcast. This is the podcast where helping academics change the world through online business. We're helping you, the listener, create an online business based on your expertise, your experience, and giving you the tools, the tips, and the strategies that you need to seed online and make change in the world. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking with Dr. Ava Ampson from shareyourside.com, easternblot.net, and avaampson.com. That's E-V-A-A-M-S-E-N.com. Eva, I want to say a big thank you and a big welcome to the Grab Blogger podcast. Thanks for having me. So Ava is a UK-based science writer and communicator. She has a PhD in biochemistry from the University of Toronto here in Canada, where I'm at. She has over a decade experience working in science communication roles for academic publishers and research groups. More recently, has moved fully into the world of freelance science writing, working for groups like Forbes and Bite Size Bio, a variety of other organizations online. So the genesis of this interview is actually an email that I got from Ava probably about a week ago now, and I'm not sure if I was on her general distribution list or if it's because I, I purchased a guidebook that she put out uh, a number of years ago now, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But I got the email and she just said, you know, I, we did an update to the guidebook that we sent out. We did a new one on SciComm for researchers and, and science communication. She had some updates about moving from easternblot.net to her new website, shareyourside.com, and it kind of jogged my memory because I remember researching Ava at least two years ago, maybe three years ago, when I was sort of just getting started in my online journey. And there were really two parts. So I came to her website twice. One was for the getting started mini course for Grab Blogger. I was impressed because she actually had something to sell on her website and a lot of academics don't have anything to sell. So she had a guidebook there that people could download and pay for, which I was like, that's nice to see because um, I was at the time was trying to figure out how to monetize my business. And then also, the book itself and the, the guidebook we're going to talk about today is From Science to SciComm, a guide for scientists interested in a science communication career. And I had by that point realized that I was doing something different than most people communicating science online with DustSafetyScience.com. I was really taking general news information and trying to convert it into an engineering and technical perspective, but I didn't have any SciComm training. So I was like, I got to get this workbook. I got to figure out how science communication people talk. And that was sort of my my long background of of Ava's work. And then I got this email a couple of weeks ago or a week ago and said, oh, we got to reconnect. So in this episode, we're going to talk about building a career in science communication um, and Ava's journey from doing that and then going and transitioning into freelance writing. And this, again, is based on her, her workbook that I read a long time ago, From Science to SciComm, A Guide for Scientists Interested in Learning or Interested in a Science Communication Career. And we're actually doing a two-part episode. In the next episode, we're going to talk about SciComm for researchers, which again is really important for me and my business at Dust Safety Science, where I'm doing 500 blog posts and 52 podcast episodes and a bunch of courses and training every year. I want to know how to communicate the, the science aspects better. So that was kind of a, a long-winded intro, and I, I better give uh, Ava a chance to, to talk here, or else she might, uh, she might sign off on me. So in this episode, again, we're going to talk about building a career in science communication. And Ava, maybe we'll just start off, how did you get into science communication in your career? Um, so I was interested in science communication, I think during undergrad even, but I didn't really know how to get started at that point. I had friends who volunteered in museums, but that didn't really seem like what I wanted to do. And then by the time I was doing my PhD, I found finally found some opportunities to try things out. So I did a number of different things, um, most of which I didn't tell my supervisor about at the time because obviously I was supposed to focus on research and here I was doing all these other things. So one of the things I did was um, 
public engagement volunteering. So there's um, in Canada, there's this organization called Let's Talk Science, which takes graduate students into middle schools and high schools and Girl Scout groups and like, all those communities to um, let them share a bit about what they do, but also often um, to do a preset activity. So I remember going into a middle school to do a physics experiment, even though I was a biochemist, but they just wanted a scientist to come in to see like, oh, that's a scientist. Um, so that's one of the things I did. Um, and the other, which for me was much more um, defining to what I ended up doing, I started a, a science blog and I basically was an internet person. So I was always online anyway. And I started my first personal blog, I think in 2001, 2002. And in around 2005, I started writing more about science and I became one of the first science bloggers. Like at that time, there were so few that we all kind of knew each other. And in 2007, I went to a science blogging conference in um, North Carolina where I think there were maybe 100 people at most. And so it was kind of a group where you could get to know people. And there were people there who were professional full-time science communicators. And we didn't really use that word at the time. So there, there would just be a journalist or a press officer. Um, but they all had these kind of jobs where they were professionally talking about science without doing research. Um, and of course, there were also still a lot of researchers there as well. But that made me realize that that was a possible career, that I didn't really love lab work. I, I just liked science. And here I had to stand in a research lab all day and it was tedious and repetitive and frustrating. And just knowing that there were opportunities out there to work for a publisher or work in marketing or do something that is still related to, to science and research without having to do it, that was just really motivating. And I, I just met so many people through that world that kind of helped me build that up. And it was around the same time that I started, kind of accidentally did my first freelance writing. I was I offered up a guest blog post somewhere and um, the blog editor also happened to be a real editor for a real publication at the time and said, actually, do you want to write this for money for the real magazine rather than for this blog? So that made me kind of realize like, oh, that's a thing you can be doing. You can get paid for writing. Um, so I started kind of doing a little bit of freelance writing on the side. And I tried to go full-time freelance after I graduated, but that, that didn't work. And I'll, I'll probably talk a bit more about that later. But once I found um, a full-time job for a publisher in the UK doing science community management and science communication, it's just, it's really all I've been doing for the past decade for a number of different places. And it all started with my science blog. Oh, I love it. It's near and dear to my heart because my my life all started with my science blog and it was called mydustexplosionresearch.com, which is a terrible name, <laughs> but that's the thing. You can, you can just get started, right? And how, how many websites have you created now in your career? Are we talking half a dozen or a dozen? I think closer to a dozen. Yeah. There is a couple that have merged and split and some that I created for other people and for groups. So. <laughs> the reason I ask is a lot of people don't get started because they're worried about picking their blog name or picking their fonts or their, their color. <laughs> and the, the journey 
if you go down this road, it, it can change your life. It sounds like it's it's changed uh, your career direction. It's definitely changed mine. And when I started off, the blog looked not good and wasn't called a great name, and and we're, and now it's called a mediocre name and it looks mediocrely good. No, now we're now we're getting better, right? <laughs> so I, I love that story. I love the timeline too. You're talking. 2001, 2002, um, the Science Blogger Conference. Yeah, that, the conference was 2007. So that was that was when people started to notice that there were science bloggers. And yeah. And do you have any recommendations? Because now today, there, I think there's more conferences and conventions and there's even degrees in it. But if somebody wanted to attend the latest and greatest kind of science blogger conference, where would that be at? I'm not even sure, to be honest. Um, so there are no science blogging conferences anymore. So, and the, um, the, they gradually changed when people realized that there were so many different types of blogs and different people doing different things. So the first few I went to, you had journalists there, you had researchers there, you had academic publishers, librarians, uh, technology companies. So I've, I was at one conference which wasn't a blogging conference I think it was about the future of science so it blogging was one part of it and I met the founder of Mendeley before anyone had heard of that so that's the kind of community that was there it's just a random mix of all kind of people and the only thing we had in common was we were doing science things on the internet but I read this um, this really great book recently by um, Gretchen McCulloch, Because Internet. It's about the language um, of the internet and how it has changed. And there's a whole chapter in there, which to me made things so clear. There are different types of internet people and different types of internet periods. And when I was reading that, it was all so recognizable. Um, and this whole landscape too, where there was this period where we had science blogging conferences and I've even been to general blogger meetups because there were just so few of us. But now everyone is online. Pretty much everyone is on Twitter. Everyone is is out there sharing their stories and, and their worlds. And it's not feasible to have conferences that are so broad. So instead, um, there's all these separate things. So there are science writing and communication conferences those are sometimes joined i know the canadian and the dutch groups have them joined communication and writing but then um, the british and the americans have separate communications and separate writing groups and there are separate meetings for people who are interested in things like open access publishing and open science and that currently is one concept but i feel like that's also splitting so open access is already separate from like sharing data and and all those groups used to just be one so it's it's very hard to keep track of it and i think today you really need to figure out which part of science communication it is that you're really interested in so i had the opportunity to discover all of these different areas because they used to all be this very amorphous online science community and I think that's a bit harder now. So I would just start with a lot of research online and maybe watch some YouTube videos from conferences. There's usually like talks online of previous meetings and you can kind of get a sense of what different things are like. Oh, I love that. And you, you need to, your next book needs to be a complete history of science communication or something. <laughs> You're like a encyclopedia. That was great. <laughs> well, it's really, but it's really cool to hear because I, my background is, is, I had a corporate role um, and my job was difficult and I was working a lot of hours. So I was looking to start an online business 
And eventually, after some failed starts, I just said, well, what, why don't I just do what I'm doing now? Nobody's going to care about dust explosions online, but you know, I'm, I'm reading a thousand papers every day and writing a thesis about it. So at least it won't be so hard for me to do. And I tried to figure out how to create a business of it, how to put business structures in place, how to, how to develop, how to monetize it, how to build profit. And then I started connecting on Twitter and, and Facebook with SciComm groups. And I was like, oh, there's a whole, whole science to this. So I sort of came in from another side and I, I missed a lot of that background. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of opportunities now that didn't exist when I was still um, a researcher. I think one of the ones that I'm really jealous of is the NPR SciCommerce Group. So NPR is supporting scientists to teach them how to communicate and, and let them explore these opportunities. And I know that a lot of people who are now professional science writers or communicators or work in public engagement, they have gone through that at some point. And those things didn't exist. Um, there were a few internships and I unfortunately graduated in December 2008, which is the month that the global economy completely collapsed. The first thing people did was cancel all their internships. So the things that I wanted to apply to just didn't even exist anymore, which was extremely frustrating. But yeah, there's so many opportunities out there. That's yeah, just look for science communication. And this is a really cool discussion. I want to bring it back to how people can get into SciComm because I, so there's two parts to it. I want people to, if they want to figure out how to build a career out of this and, and I'm not using on Grapple, I'm talking about building your own business. I'm going to talk about moving into that as well, but I think it is a viable career path and a viable middle step to building out your own business, becoming good at presenting information and putting it online. So that's what made this episode come kind of together in my mind. But even more than that, when I read through your guidebook from science to SciComm, it has like, here's the, the steps you need to make if you want to start a science career. You can do public engagement, do experiments at elementary schools. So maybe winding back, and I have the, the guidebook in front of me, what made you create this guidebook in the first place? So I'd written a few blog posts on the... Actually, I think that guidebook, all the chapters also exist as blog posts. It is, yeah, which is, which is great. I, it's um, an excellent reuse of the material in my mind. And it's so funny because it, it means that everything, well, everything except the worksheets at the end is essentially the, the text itself is is free online, but people still buy the workbook because it's more, it's coherent and you can, yeah, it's easier to find things. So I'd been giving a lot of career talks and you end up getting a lot of questions from people. And I would go in even, even working for a publisher and my call to act basically would be try out our new thing and this is what we have for you the researcher and I would get people coming up to me afterwards saying how can I get your job this sounds fun like you're, you get to visit us at our university but you don't have to do research and and it was really fun so I thought you know okay I can I can explain how I got here but it's going to be different for you because you're not starting a blog in the early 2000s so it's not going to be the same opportunities um, so I kind of collected um, stories from how other people got into their jobs and what they did. And most of these questions came from researchers. So it's kind of aimed at 
what do you do if you're a PhD student or a postdoc and you know that you want to do something with science communication and you want a job in that, where do you start? And I kind of collected all these different opportunities. Like um, here is where you can give um, talks to adults or visit a school and talk to children. Or here is where you can get started writing or here are some people who can help you with that. And that turned into these blog posts and eventually this whole workbook. So. <laughs> And I, I want to put a gold star on the reusing the blog post because a lot of people are scared to do that because they think it's online and mm-hmm. free and why would anyone ever? And so I, as soon as I saw it was available and it's not a, it's a, I think it's $5 or five pounds. Yeah, it's $5. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness it's not pounds. That's not good for the Canadian dollar. No, <laughs> um, it was, it was a, it was like a no brainer. It's 30 or 40 pages. It's right there. And it's like, here's, here's all the information you need. I would probably, I would have paid more than $5. I'll, I'll put that out there as a good starting, but you were able to build it up from the material you already put out. And it's actually a good content plan for somebody. If they're, if you're thinking now, okay, I want to write a, a guidebook and this is really digestible. Like it's just really actionable. You can write the outline and then write your blog posts to fill that outline. And then in six months, you'll have your book or your guidebook. It's a good way to go about it. I, I, so Gold star. I, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I got the um, I got the idea actually from one of my former employers, where um, I was writing blog posts for them, and uh, my boss at the time um, suggested that I turn them into a, a white paper that we were going to, you know, put an ad on the back page, and we could print it and hand it out at conferences or encourage people to download it and leave their email address so they could build the mailing list. And I thought, well, that sounds strange because they can just get the blog posts on the website. But the whole design around it and the fact that it's a a themed little booklet that still made that people wanted to download that and give us their email address. So I saw how that worked and I saw that that was a success. And I thought, well, if people want to give their email address to a company in exchange for this, then maybe they want to give an independent person money. And they did. (laughs) Oh, that's great. I, yeah, I really want to highlight on that point because I think it's, it's a less stressful way than sitting down for three months and trying to write the book. Although yeah, which you, is what I did the second time. But <laughs> maybe we'll, we'll probably get into that. We're going to talk about the the second guidebook, which is SciCom for researchers, a guide for scientists who want to communicate their work to new audiences. And we're going to talk about that in the the, the second uh, part of this podcast episode. So if you're listening to this when it comes out, actually I'll have to wait a week. But if you're listening to this in the future, definitely go forward to the next one after this as well, and we'll talk about that. If somebody wants to get into SciCom today. You know, we talked about a couple of things, public engagement. We talked about the group, Let's Talk Science, start a science blog. I put my hand up as, as recommending that, obviously. Um, you know, join a, a join an event or a meetup. What are some other ways that people can go about getting started today? Um, so there's, a, there's another opportunity that is only available to researchers, and that is um, writing for sites like The Conversation. They are particularly interested in hearing from academics. You can't really write for them unless you're an academic. And those articles are licensed under a Creative Commons license. So once you've written for them, that article often appears in other places as well. And I come across these articles all the time when I'm just looking up scientific information about some things like, oh, there's an article um, on the conversation about this. Um, So that's one thing that's really good for writers. Um, For people who think that they want to do something like speaking or videos, um, there's all these things like um, Fame Lab or Bright Club, which 
is um, short talks without slides. Um, some of them are kind of comedy. Some of them are like more informational. Those are really helpful in um, getting people to think about their their speaking style and presentation style, and basically good to good practice for anyone who wants to do um, anything either on stage or um, teaching or video or something like that. Yeah, and I'll throw in a couple more. Um, start a podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I'm a little biased there, but that's a that's an option. Or be a, be a guest on a podcast. It's a lot less work. <laughs> that's a great. Way. That's a that's a really good point. Be a guest on ten podcasts, and then you do less work, but you just get to have the fun part. <laughs> um, yeah, be a guest on a podcast. Start a podcast. Video as well. We had uh, Doctor Sarah Langworthy on in early days in the podcast on how to create video. So there's lots of options out there. I think so. We talked about your career a bit moving through, um, getting into science communication, you know, joining this this network of people that were sort of starting this movement. Then you started working for some companies and publications and and, and sort of having a job in this. Where, where are you at today with your science writing? Do you still work? I'm completely freelance at the moment. Um, so I'm full-time freelance and I've got um, a couple of um, ongoing contracts with different places. So I'm a contributor at Forbes. I'm editor at Bite Size Bio, and I've got a couple of more regular clients. Um, and then some of my writing is um, writing for magazines and blogs where I need to pitch the editor every time I want to write a story. Those are the more visible things I do. Um, and then some of the work I do is writing for commercial clients when they just um, maybe want to update the text on their website or they want to write a brochure and they, they need a writer with a scientific background to summarize some studies or to interview one of their researchers. And that often doesn't have my name on it, so it's not so visible, but that's another big part of what I do. And then the last is um, directly supporting researchers. So I do a lot of that through um, Share Your Sci, which we'll talk about more in the next episode. And um, I also do some community management for a client where I help researchers prepare blog posts about their work. So a lot of things. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, you, you need to, right? If you're kind of providing a service, you need to find, you need to go where the clients are. You need to um, fish where the fish is, so they say, I guess. Um, so you're kind of finding those those different clients in those different areas, and it probably provides some variety, right? You're not writing the same 600 word blog post all day every day. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the best thing. <laughs> every day is different. And you mentioned a point that I started up here about. So now you are full time freelance, which I'm sure a lot of listeners of this podcast are thinking, well, I, I want to get to that point, and I want to talk about some of the ways that you did that. But you mentioned at the very start that you did try that when you first graduated and that didn't work out. So if you don't mind, maybe we could dig into that a little bit. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. So basically there were two things going on. Um, I definitely can blame the economy. (laughs) People not only weren't uh, offering internships, they also weren't hiring freelancers. And I know that because I was doing a little bit of freelance writing on the side during my PhD. And I thought, well, I can at least build on that. But even approaching those same clients and saying, okay, I've got more time now. Can I write this or this? They would either um, not have any freelance writers, cut the entire section I had been writing for, cut the pay that they were offering. So it was just really difficult. 
Um, but the second thing was that I just didn't know what I was doing and I had no experience. So I came straight out of my PhD and I didn't really know how to find work. So the, the big thing about freelancing is that you're always not just doing the work, but also looking for the next gig. So this week, half of my week is doing work that I've already agreed on with clients. And the other half is various applications for um, new freelance positions, for travel grants, for all kinds of things um, that might lead to future work. And that's, that's really hard to balance. And I just didn't know how to do that when I first started. Then during my full-time jobs, I had a little bit of a challenge the first few years because um, the publisher I worked for had a clause in their contract that said that you could not work for other publishers while you work for them. And of course, most of my freelance work had been working for publishers because I was writing. And even though some of my colleagues had all these side hustles in completely unrelated fields, I wasn't able to continue to do mine. But then my next job did allow me to write because it was so, like they were just being more reasonable and said, well, that's clearly not related at all to what you're doing here. So that's fine. And I had more of a marketing type um, face of the company role. So it was actually more in their benefit that I was also doing other things and kind of making myself more visible in general. Um, so during that time, I kicked um, I kicked it up a notch with the freelancing and I did some more um, pitching articles to magazines just making sure that I had at least one or two articles a year that weren't blog posts so that I could say this is what I wrote for this magazine and this was professionally edited by someone and clearly I know how to do this so for writing in particular, you kind of have to have these clips so that you can, it, it's just like, whereas a, a regular job interview, they ask you for references from your previous job. If you're writing and freelance writing, they often just want to see the work you've already done. So building that up was really important. Um, so that's a thing that I continue to do on the side during my next two jobs. And then um, the last full-time job I was in, the entire team I was in was made redundant. And we, we knew that months ahead of time, so they gave us good notice and they said, you know, can we help you find a new job? And I thought, I think this is the time for me to go freelance because I had been preparing for it mentally and I had been building up my portfolio. And now they were basically saying, in a few months, you'll be without a job so I could plan ahead. Um, we got the redundancy pay, so I knew I would be financially secure for a couple of months. So yeah, I, it was just the perfect timing for me to say, okay, I'm going to try it now. And it was a little, still at the beginning, a little bit hard because I had to kind of start afresh finding new new clients and letting people know that I was available and letting them know what I could do. I started going to a lot of conferences and meetups and just talking to tons of people. And then after about six months, it got to the point where I was just completely full-time busy and <laughs> couldn't take on anything more. And I even went a couple of months without having to find new work because there was too much of it. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it was good timing as well as just preparation and making sure that I always had my, my portfolio ready, making sure, like if someone at any time came up to me and said, Hey, I've got some freelance work and you show me what you did. I would have some examples ready to show them. That's a really cool story. I like going from the hard part, like it didn't work out and I kind of had to reset and then building up that career and building up that journey and working with companies and then breaking out on your own. You mentioned a couple of ways that you find work 
today, like attending conferences. Um, do, but do you have some other suggestions for other people on the best way to, to find work? Do you do any Upwork or any kind of communities or things like that? I tried Upwork that didn't work out at all. Um, I tried Collab Tree, which is specifically for um, scientific work. That worked a little bit better in that I got one client through it that has now offered me work separately, not through the site. Um, sorry, Collab Tree. It worked better because it's more focused and um, the clients are used to working with academics and are kind of used to offering rates that are a little bit more reasonable. Um, Upwork, you are competing with people who live in countries where just the the average pay is a lot lower. So I have to have a certain minimum to be able to live in London, and I can't compete with someone who lives in a very, very cheap city and is basically asking one-tenth of what I would charge. Um, so that was kind of the hard part of Upwork and um, because CollabTree is kind of more focused on scientists, that was a bit easier because everyone kind of knew what to expect. I also use, um, I'm on, I never know if it's, if it's contently or contently, but it's a content writing website. It's hard to find clients on there. So I started because um, a client had just put out a general call and said, if you want to work for us, sign up to this website. And then once you're on it, you can put your portfolio on. And um, I realized I wasn't getting any work because I hadn't put enough tags describing my work in there. So I had my skill only as article writing. And then I looked through it again when I was kind of updating all my online sites. And I thought, oh, there's a couple of other things in here that I can do. There is research, there's profile writing, interviews. And I added all the other things. And within a few weeks, I had another client contact me. So just being present um, and just visible, that really helped there. And yeah, pitching articles to magazines, that's a... That's another big way that I find things. And um, I'm on a lot of mailing lists where jobs are regularly posted. So again, I would say get on all the mailing lists that are even remotely relevant to what you want to do. Another trick that I've tried that hasn't worked for me, but I know has worked for other people. Um, if you see a, a full-time job ad that is in your field of expertise, contact them and say, I am a freelancer. And if you don't fill this um, job right away, do you need someone to cover um, the work in the, in the intermediate period? Um, so I haven't had any luck with that, usually because people have been very good with placing their job ads, making sure that there is no gap. Um, but that little gap in between full-time employees is often where a company needs someone freelance and they don't really know where to look because they're only used to looking for full-time employees. I love it. I wrote down a bunch there. You know, Make sure you're pitching articles, join mailing lists, attend conferences. The I'm going to call full-time job hacking. I like that um, as, a, as a strategy as well. <laughs> yeah, because you know that they're short someone at that moment. So <laughs> That's right. Make sure you set your tags. So all those search sites are search engines. So you do want to optimize for keyword. And this is where having a blog probably helps because you, you have some sense of how search engines work. Um, they can optimize for keywords and things like that. So make sure you're setting your tags. Make sure you're including keywords in your descriptions and that. I actually, I, re, I rejoined LinkedIn. Um, I left LinkedIn because I wasn't able to get my profile to 
properly reflect who I was after way too many people had recommended me for cell biology and there was no way to get rid of it. And I think they've now changed it so that you can get rid of skills that people give you without you wanting them. But at the time you couldn't. And I keep getting all these job offers for research jobs. (laughs) No. So I just got rid of the whole thing. I deleted my entire account and I went back on there recently and now, if I if I log in, it actually shows me things that are relevant to me and I don't have any weird recommendations for things that I haven't done in a decade. So, <laughs> Really cool. Do you have any referral system with existing clients? I think that might be a strong way of getting more work. I don't think I do, but I do have um, several clients that are basically... Um, that have clients themselves. So they always have work coming in. So they're more like um, agencies or organizations. So especially for science writing, there are a lot of um, agencies that are, that have a much higher visibility than I as an individual. And they're easy to find and companies trust them because they've built up this huge body of work from working with multiple writers. And there's, yeah, there's quite a lot of work that comes in. I think I'm, I'm, affiliated with three different groups at the moment um and yeah working with lots of different companies um, i think sometimes it even ends up being the same company that then a different department uses a different agency and then they both end up working with me <laughs> <laughs> well that's really cool so there's a whole bunch of places to get started on the freelance path if you're looking for work and you can kind of do it like i was saying you know you can do it fast if your life is in a, in a place where you could just cut your job and and uh, cut your losses and then go full time or you can you can do a little bit slower and build up your portfolio and build up your work and build up your pipeline and both are both are viable avenues uh, if you have children and and um, spouse and hosts and things like that then maybe you need to move a little slower if you're a grad student and you're on stipend maybe you can jumping out of the graduate degree is a whole other discussion but you know maybe you can jump kind of full full uh, full force. In and there's lots of different ways to go. So I appreciate you sharing that whole journey of just you know building a career in science communication. And what I wasn't expecting was the the kind of the history behind it as well, because it's interesting to to hear about how that's developed. Yeah, I I do feel kind of lucky, I guess, for starting a blog when it wasn't super popular, because it made me so much more visible than I would have been if I started it ten years later. Um, I would have just been completely ignored and lost. And now I was in a, 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 yeah, just the right time and the right activity for that history of the internet. <laughs> well, any recommendations for someone today if they, if they wanted to get started then? It kind of, I think it kind of depends what they want to do. I've seen people get really successful through Twitter or Instagram, um, but they always also have something else. Like they always also have a website or they also do a podcast or, you know, something that is, um, that allows them a bit more freedom than that constrained social media space. But it's, um, yeah, it really depends on who is looking at it. Cause, um, Twitter, I would say generally that the people who look at a scientist tweet are other scientists. So you have to really, yeah, you have to really get noticed there, do something really clever or funny um, to to break out of that bubble. You have to go viral once, and that doesn't happen to most people. So, cool, yeah, and we'll we're gonna discuss that how to figure out who your audience is and make sure you're communicating to the right one. And I actually have some personal thoughts on on that that I've developed over the, the years as well. So we're gonna do that in 
part two of this episode. Um, I think that's a good place to, to close off for this episode on um, on building a career in science communication and using that to then potentially go freelance if that's where you're looking to go. Any one last thing you want to leave the the audience off on before we, we cut it for this episode? Um, yeah, just remember that there are lots of, if you're interested in science communication, that there are so many different types of it and just um, do a little bit of research and try to find out what the, the different different communication jobs and roles are. And where's the best place for people to, I mentioned a, a couple of your sites, shareyoursci.com, Ava Ampson, E-V-A-A-M-S-E-N.com, easternblot.net, which is your older blog. But where's the, the best place if somebody wants to find more about you or where should they go? If they want to find out more about me, I guess, um, avaamson.com, which I need to update, but that has um, like some of my projects and different things on it. That has everything on it. That's like the main portfolio and portal. <laughs> and um, shareyoursci.com slash workbooks, W-O-R-K-B-O-O-K-S. It's where the listeners can find this From Science to SciComm workbook and also the SciComm for Researchers guidebook that's, uh, that we'll talk about in the next episode. So I want to say thank you, Ava, and I'm looking forward to um, talking to you next week again on the Grab Blogger podcast. Thank you. Talk to you soon. <laughs> so you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and Dr. Ava Ampson. We've been talking about building a career in science communication and then using that to transition into to freelance or to doing your own thing in this space. So we covered quite a bit of background. We covered Ava's background, how she got started in the space, what SciComm looked like um, in the early 2000s and mid-2000s. We talked about you know, how to get started, how to get started actually communicating your science. You can do things like presenting in elementary schools or you know, writing specific publications. And Ava gave a bunch of tips there. We talked about how to build a career in science communication and some of the challenges that might come up, um, especially if you're looking to go freelance right away, some challenges in finding clients, some challenges in marketing yourself um, and just finding that work. And it really is a skill to both of those are skills. Actually, there's three main skills, marketing yourself, finding clients, and sales. Um, those are all skills you need to learn for that process. Then we talked about her transition. We talked about how she finds work today. We gave a bunch of tips on how freelance writers and places they can go, communities they can connect with to uh, get that information. So we'll probably put that out and put into a, a cheat sheet at grabblotter.com slash 50 of the top five or six or seven places that you can think about going to find freelance writing work. So as we mentioned, this is part one of a two-part episode. In the next episode, we're going to be talking about SciComm for researchers, finding your audience, and how to actually communicate your science as an academic, as a researcher. And we'll probably put a couple spins on it. Obviously, we're going to talk about graduate students and professors, um, but also I'll talk about my background of what you can do with building a business and, sci and doing science communication as part of that business um, online as well. So I hope you liked this episode. If you did, definitely tag me at GrabBlogger and tag Ava on Twitter at Eastern Blot and at Share Your Sci. And rate and review this episode on iTunes. If you like it, share it with your friends. We'd love to uh, continue to grow the Grab Blogger podcast. Keep bringing these episodes with you to you every week. So have a great week ahead. I'm really looking forward to next week's episode where we'll be again um, interviewing Ava for part two of this uh, this podcast series. Mm -hmm.